Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Lord Jesus, we thank you for everything you put in your word, even the things that are difficult, um, things that humble us, things that show to us uh, not the the hubris of Christian faith, but the humility of it. And so, Lord, as we examine your word today, um, we ask that you be gracious to us, that you draw near to us in all things, even things that the world say are the worst of things. So we pray for this time. We pray for our ears and for our hearts. We pray for conversion and repentance and worship. We pray for joy and joy abounding We pray for all of this to a God who through his Holy Spirit works wonders. We pray this in your name. Amen. What's your response to being surprised? There are people in this world, my wife being one, who loves spontaneity and surprises are welcomed at any moment in time. And then there are normal people who like to plan things and be aware of what's going on in their life, um, who are less excited when surprises come. There are people like my son who loves to jump around corners and surprise people, but he himself hates it when you do it in return. And we have this love-hate relationship with surprises and our relationship to it generally has to do with the nature of the surprise. There are good surprises, there are bad surprises. There's the surprise of a new promotion at work and a surprise of being furloughed in a COVID-19 economy. There's the surprise of getting accepted into the grad school you were hoping for and the surprise of an untimely medical diagnosis. There are good surprises and there are bad surprises. And secondary to the nature of the surprise is another factor that influences our response to them. And that's our level of preparedness to the surprise. When we are surprised by something, it demands, this unexpected event demands us to act or to respond in a proper way to the changing circumstances. And in light of both the nature being good or bad and the level of preparedness, this is what Peter opens his text with today in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 13. Beloved, he's writing to his churches. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we're finishing 1 Peter. We're gonna fin- if you're wondering what we're going to do after this, we're actually going to continue into 2 Peter um, after this. We've got a couple weeks left here. And here in 1 Peter, Peter wants believers to not be surprised at the difficulties of following Jesus in a way where you're unprepared, when it becomes difficult. But on the flip side, what we see in verse 13 is even when he's speaking of difficult times in following Jesus, he says you're going to be pleasantly surprised by what you do encounter when life is hard, by what you do experience when things are difficult. And central to this passage is this thing he refers to as the fiery trial here in verse 12. And on account of this trial, he says, don't consider it strange when it happens. In other words, find it to be expected. Don't be caught off guard by it. It shouldn't be something that is strange or odd or out of place to you. And this is important for us to define, like, what is he talking about with this fiery trial? He's not talking about 
um, suffering in general. The Apostle Paul, when he talks about suffering, often speaks of suffering in general. And we could suffer in many ways because we live in a broken world. This is universal. Whether you're a Christian or atheist or Buddhist or Hindu, all of these people share in this suffering. We can experience loss, health issues, injustice, sorrow, and pain because our world aches with sin. Most people, Christian or not, have learned to expect this kind of suffering. We're not caught off guard when we stub our toe and it hurts because we've learned that that's the nature of life in this world. And it's often expected that when you encounter that kind of suffering, you are pitied in a good way, in a way where people want to care for you and run to help you. But this category of suffering is not Peter's primary category of suffering in 1 Peter. Peter is talking to Christians about suffering on account of their faith in Jesus and their obedience to him. He is writing specifically about suffering on account of the name of Jesus. Yet, what we'll see as we look at this specific suffering, if we as Christians can wrap our mind what it's like to suffer on the name of Jesus, we also get hope in all of that general suffering. In other words, when we understand how to suffer for what the world considers to be strange, we will be better equipped to suffer for what the world sees to be common. And as Christians today, just as we have been since Peter wrote this letter, we can't afford to neglect this passage. To neglect this passage is to do so at your own risk. This was challenging for me this week. It hit close to home as I was thinking, in my years as a Christian, in my years in ministry, there have maybe only been two to three times where I've experienced any sort of significant pushback or tension because of my faith in Jesus. And even those moments, they're relatively mild. Which means as I understand what he's writing about here, I don't come, and I don't think any Christian who understands what Peter's talking about comes with this arrogance or this confidence of, of being like, look at what we've done. We come to this text by nature uh, humbly, knowing that specifically in the Western church, we or me at least, we can have a false assurance that we are ready to suffer on account for the name. But to neglect a passage like this might mean that when that fiery trial comes upon you, you, if you neglect this, might be one who's caught off guard. Might be one who is surprised as if something strange is happening to you. And I think in different ways, there's different false gospels in our world that lull us into a false sense of security when it comes to what we expect in this world. One that is growing, um, and unfortunately it's growing fastest in missionary contexts in the poorest of countries, and it's called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says that you know that you are blessed by God if you thrive according to world standards. That thriving looks like success in business, wealth, health, all of that. But what we're gonna see in our text today is that a sign that you're blessed by God might mean that you actually suffer in this world on account of Christ. Now we, I think in America, the the northern part of America, I think we can see generally some of the clear dangers of the prosperity gospel. We don't think that Jesus came to make us rich. That wasn't what he came for. But I think we could actually fall prey 
to another false gospel, which is actually more subtle and equally as dangerous. That's what I call the passivity gospel. And the passivity gospel is some shell of Christian confession and Christian culture which affirms Christian faith while denying that faith any sort of controlling influence over our lives. Meaning that when we view Christianity, our Christianity always follows the path of least resistance. It's a fair-weather Christianity. It convinces us that the difficult public and private acts of following Jesus, that includes the internal acts of fighting sin, the external acts of uh, sharing the gospel, or perhaps even today encountering persecution on account of the faith, is at best recommended. If you're a good Christian, sure you could do that. And at worst, entirely to be sidestepped. But what both the prosperity and gospel and the passivity gospel do is completely contrary to what we think they do. People live in those false gospels thinking that either worldly fame or acceptance by the world is what brings you joy. But both of those rob you of joy. That's what Peter's after today. Both the passivity gospel and the prosperity gospel not only rob you of joy, but they should be entirely dumbfounded by the way Jesus himself speaks of the cost of discipleship. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. To be a Christian is not to be rewarded with the world's idea of reward. To be a Christian is not to find acceptance by worldly standards as a norm. That doesn't mean that we might not experience those at times, but it means when those go away, to be a Christian is to not be surprised when they do. Instead, to be a Christian is to be identified with a Savior who himself was mistreated and murdered at the hands of sinners. If you're a Christian here this week, I have a question that seems simple. It's a question I wrestled with this week, and that is this. Would you be surprised if the world treated you like it treated Jesus? Would you be surprised in all of our language of following Jesus, living for Jesus, would you be surprised if those decisions caused you to be treated in the way Jesus himself was treated. Now, if you're a non-believer in here today, you might hear this and think that we need a better PR campaign for Christianity. This isn't a good sell. Why would we do this? Why would we follow a Jesus who asks this of his disciples? And over the course of this sermon today, I hope that you'll be convinced, but if I were to summarize, this is why. Because while Christians are not surprised when at times the world mistreats us, we are pleasantly surprised when even at the most difficult crossroads of obedience, we find the nearness of our Savior to be what satisfies us even in life's most painful moments. The big idea of what Peter is communicating today is that the experience of suffering for a Christian allows believers to better experience satisfaction in Jesus. The experience of suffering 
ultimately gives way to a greater experience of satisfaction in Jesus. Seems counterproductive. Seems like an experience we don't want. And yet Peter is preparing us to see this as an experience which if it comes to us by the will of God, we recognize the weighty joy that lies behind it. And we're seeing this in three ways today, all of which show what we share with Christ. That is what Paul or Peter is after. We're going to see first that to share in Jesus' suffering is to share in his glory. Secondly, we're going to see that to share in Jesus' name is to share in his blessing. And then finally, we're going to see that to share in Jesus' trust is to share in his hope. And so we're going to begin today looking at our first point in the two verses I already read for you, verses 12 and 13. Peter says this, Beloved, I always love how whenever Peter starts a passage on suffering, he reminds us that you as Christians are first and foremost loved by Jesus, and that is a great hope. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I remember um, growing up, uh, we don't have great theme parks in the Northwest. We have Silverwood. Um, and so I remember going to Silverwood, which has gotten a lot cooler since I was young. And they have uh, a water ride called Thunder Canyon. And when you go on this ride, you stand in line by this water thing, this river. And you see everyone get on this tube that sits low to the water and go down these rapids which spill up and drench everybody and there's waterfalls and there's water guns and you watch it happen before you and they have to put this recording on loop that says this, this is a water attraction. Chances are you will get wet. And I remember thinking, who is it who can stand here and watch these people go tube after tube down a rapid infested river covered in waterfalls and expect to not get wet? To which Peter says, how many of us think we could follow a savior who was rejected, mocked, made fun of, misunderstood, and murdered for his obedience to God and think that you might not get wet when your obedience leads you down the same river? Look at what Jesus says again to his disciples in John chapter 15, verses 19 through the first part of 20. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So here we see proof that conversion to Christianity is the greatest miracle there ever could be. Because repentance and belief in the gospel, which is what makes us a Christian, the gospel being the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, is not something we could do in our own flesh. Why? Because who signs up for that? Who looks at that and says, this is a step towards joy? except for a person to whom God has impressed by the work of his Holy Spirit, the reality that your greatest problem is not hostility with the world, but hostility with God. 
and that you see Jesus as this reconciling force to take what was broken, to take what was damned, to take what was dangerous, and to put it in himself, and thereby to bring you by his love into God's grace. Christianity makes sense in no other category. When Jesus suffered on the cross, he suffered not as a sign of love for you. The creator God could institute any sign. If his sign was to kill his son, that's sadistic. Jesus died because you deserve to suffer. Because you were at hostility with God on account of your unbelief, what Peter calls disobedience to the gospel. And so Jesus suffered to bring you to God. And on account of that, the cost of following Jesus is worth it. But here, Peter says that we share in Christ's suffering. What Jesus did is so unique, we need to understand what he's talking about here. He's saying that Jesus' suffering was pretty good, almost enough. If you can suffer, you'll earn enough penance, and therefore God will accept you. No, Jesus' sacrifice, the author of Hebrews says, once and for all. We saw that earlier in 1 Peter, where he says, because Christ suffered once and for all in the flesh. So we're sharing in Christ's suffering in 1 Peter 4. It's not talking about sharing in the atonement. It's sharing in terms of this solidarity that comes with obedience and the Christian. Why did Jesus suffer? It was not because he was the son of God. Jesus could have been the son of God in heaven forever. His identity was set Jesus could have been the son of God hiding out in Nazareth making the best wooden chairs you could ever buy. Jesus could have been entitled the son of God and not suffered. Jesus suffered because as the son of God, he obeyed God. Jesus, as the son of God, obeyed his heavenly father in fulfilling the messianic role of being the one who would bring a broken people back to God in his body. We are not God's messiahs. Christians, though, are called to obey God, and the obedience we have in following the God who saves us will often put us at odds with the expectation and even the authorities of culture. So as we obey Jesus, we share in the suffering Jesus himself shared as being obedient to the Father. And here, this obedience leads straight into a fiery trial. What is the fiery trial? He goes on to describe it in experience as suffering. What is he talking about? What are these people experiencing? Well, you see it at the beginning of verse 16 when he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. What is the fiery trial? that these soft snowflake Christians are experiencing? Name calling. 17 days ago, in India, a group of Hindu extremists broke into the house of a 14-year-old boy named Samaru, drug him out of his home, and murdered him because he and his father converted to Christianity. And here Peter calls name calling the fiery trial. Does this make light of Samaru? 
Does this make light of what Peter himself is going to experience on account of the gospel? Does this make light to what's going to come with Nero and at the beginning of the second century where it's, where it's uh, imperial persecution of the Christian church? Here's what I love about a biblical view of suffering. You see, the world, whether it's cries for injustice, whether it's cries for mistreatment, they always come to you and they want to say, tell me how much you've suffered. And based off how much you've suffered, then I'll tell you if you could be validated. If I've had a, be- a greater experience of suffering than you, then your suffering is not suffering. Get over it. But how wonderful is our God when the Bible acknowledges suffering in our experience instead of the source of it. The Bible is after God who created our hearts understands the experience of our hearts and validates suffering as we experience it. It's easy for us to say being insulted for the sake of Christ is nothing. But what happens if when you are insulted for the sake of Christ and those silly words strike you to the core? Do you just look around at the heroes of the faith and say, what a wimp. Who am I? Instead, Peter isn't into making little of your experience. For he understands that all of our experiences of sin are so big that Jesus came to die for it. And instead, in the midst of those experiences, he gives us hope. Paul does something similar in 2 Corinthians verses one, uh, in chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, where he says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired life itself. What's interesting is Paul does not describe. He wants to make them aware of what they were afflicted with, but he doesn't tell them what they were afflicted with. But what does he tell them? That they despaired life itself. You see, there will be times in your walk with Jesus where whether it is due to a silly name or the presence of a shooting squad, where you will despair life itself. And Peter comes with the bigness of Jesus' gospel and he gives you hope in the midst of it. When you despair in your heart, life itself, when you feel the fiery trial of suffering, the gospel comes with hope regardless of the size. And what is the hope? 1 Peter 4, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you might also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Why do we rejoice? Because though we might share in Christ's sufferings now, as Christians, we know that we will one day also share in his glory. Why should we not be surprised and unprepared when we suffer on account of the faith? Because that suffer, it is in suffering with Jesus that we are reminded of all we get to share with Jesus. To suffer for Jesus in the world is to actually use what Peter is doing. It is to doubly rejoice, to rejoice all the more that when Jesus comes back, we know because we are suffering for him that we will not just share suffering. We will share in his glory. You see, here is why the world will cause you to suffer. 
Because in their evil hearts held captive by the devil, they will try to cause you to suffer so that you might experience what you lack in Christianity. But in God's wonderful will, every weapon of suffering reminds us of what we have in Christianity. We have Christ. We have resurrection hope. We have the removal of the infinite judgment of our sin and the promise of life everlasting. There may be times in your life where obedience to Jesus will lead you to circumstances where you feel ostracized, isolated, and alone. But in those moments when we are suffering for Jesus, we are never apart from Jesus. And we have a Savior who suffered himself. And he comes to you and he holds your hands and he says, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know what it's like. And I endured all of that. And I suffered the weight of sin. And you don't have to. Look at what you have. Look at my body. Look at this glory. Look with what will be yours because of what I've done for you. I know it's hard, but it just gets better. Suffering is God's way of reminding us in experience of the hope of glory. The hope that what Jesus gives us in the gospel is relief from the greatest suffering. And what Jesus promises in the gospel is a wonderful eternal relationship untouched by the pains of this world in a new heaven and a new earth. If you want to delight in heaven, it might be in God's time and in God's will to bring you to the conflux of difficult and costly decisions of obedience, which result in the hostility of the world. So that we might say, I don't just share suffering, I share in glory. Peter continues, he says this, to share in Jesus' name is to also share in his blessing. To share in Jesus' name is to share in his blessing. Verses 14 through 16. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter just shows us how when we suffer on account of costly obedience for the sake of Christ, you do not suffer without hope. You suffer with the hope of heaven given to you in Jesus Christ. And now he says, when you are suffering, make sure you are suffering for things which are truly Christian. And here we see this repetition of the name. When you suffer for the name of Christ, glorify God in that name. What is that name? Christian. Interestingly enough, there are only three times in the New Testament where the word Christian is used to describe believers. And here is one of them. To be named a Christian is just be identified as one who follows Jesus. To follow Jesus is to obey Jesus. And so Peter is making a point of contrast here that if you are persecuted... Make sure it is on account of the Christian name and not on the account of another name, namely the name of sin. He encourages believers to lean into suffering for the name of Christ, but he says make sure you don't suffer for the name of a murderer, 
a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. Christians ought to be sure they suffer for the good name and not for the bad ones. If our suffering is due to our faith and obedience in Jesus Christ, then we should make sure that when we experience opposition from those around us, it is for our obedience to Jesus and not our disobedience of him. You see, it's not hard. We are introspective. We are in our nature, uh, a little self-inflated about ourselves. It is not hard for us at times to assume that when our coworkers, our neighbors, our media, our governments are tense towards us, it is because our name, Christian. They just don't like me because I'm Christian. When at times, it might be on account of a different name. You see, the world recognizes it's reasonable for them to be against you if you're a murderer or a thief. We as Christians, we understand that clearly. If we kill somebody, if we steal somebody, and those somebodies are antagonistic against us, it makes sense to us. We're not suffering for being a Christian. We're suffering for doing wrong. But then Peter includes these two other words to go from the narrow sins that we so obviously say are out of place in following Jesus to broader terms, an evildoer and a meddler. Christians should not suffer for the token big sins, but they should also not suffer for smaller, sometimes more culturally acceptable ones for being a little bit deceitful in your business practices, for being okay with a certain level of gossip about a certain number of people, for being a busybody, vengeful, hateful, overbearing, maybe sometimes lazy. When we experience the insults or pressures from the world around us, Peter is saying that a sober-minded Christian examines why they're being treated as such. And if it's for the sake of a name that is not Christ, a name of your own comfort, a name of your own opinion, a name of your own desire to be right, a name of your own wealth, he says you should stop doing that and change. Augustine, the fourth century pastor, wrote to another pastor who was beating his chest because The government was opposing him and he assumed it was because of this great solidarity he shared with Christ when Augustine knew it was because of a certain level of stubbornness and obstinacy that this man and his followers had. And he said this in the fourth century to summarize. He says, whenever a man suffers anything that is harsh and unpleasing, he's warned to consider why it is that he's suffering. If you discover you're suffering for what is right, continue in it. But if you see that it is unrighteousness for which you suffer, you should understand that you are suffering and being tormented most fruitlessly and change your purpose for the better. So when you encounter suffering, it is meant for you to look inward, to assess, and to say, are we suffering because we're named with Christ? Are we suffering because we're being named with sins? Because Jesus, we see in Isaiah 53, which Peter's quoted twice already in this book, because Jesus was numbered among the transgressors, Christians should not be. To be numbered among the transgressors by Jesus' blood is sufficient. That's the language he uses, right? 
Time spent in the past was sufficient for doing what was evil. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't associate with sinners. Why? Because Jesus did. This doesn't mean that when we associate with sinners, there are some who will make us guilty by association. Why do we know that? Because they did the same thing to Jesus. But it does mean that with God as our witness, we ought to not rightly be named as these because of our own participation in them. Suffering causes us to assess the nature of our suffering. And in fact, suffering might cause us to assess why we are not suffering. It might be that God has been faithful. God has been faithful to Christians in the history of America. And we praise God for that. And we pray for more of that. But there might be real times when you assess your lack of suffering that perhaps it is due to your own sin and not to God's faithfulness. Then we should assess why we're suffering. And if we're suffering for the name of Christ, for hard decisions rooted in our new identity in Jesus, then we continue and yet we find hope. Wonderful hope. Hope that doesn't make us ashamed. Hope again in verses 14 through 16. Listen to the hope. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. So we've assessed, we're not. What is our hope? Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If you suffer for the sake of Jesus, you are blessed, according to Peter. Blessed. This is the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 5, verse 10, where Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's almost what Peter was just talking about in verses 12 through 14. Why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what does he mean when he says blessed? The word for blessed in both Peter's writing and in Jesus' writing is just the Greek word for happy. Happy are you. We sometimes think of blessed as like this weird emotion that only saints have that's completely disjointed from normal person experience. Like we could be blessed and just be utterly miserable, terrible, and wanting just to crumble. But there's this blessedness that walks into circumstances which can have that effect on you and yet makes you happy. Is Peter crazy? How would this make us happy? How is it that suffering on account of our Christian name should make us happy? Well, Peter has shown us in this text. It makes us happy because it reminds us of what we've been joined to. To be named Christian through the name of Jesus is to be united to God. It is to have the spirit of God himself, the spirit of that eternal glory inside of you. And because of that, when you experience someone making fun of that, you are not ashamed of it, but it becomes a sort of badge of honor that you're like, I am worthy of this. This is what I've worked so hard to get. Sidebar, Christians don't work hard to get it. Jesus did. But this is what you take great honor in. You have got the name. I love this story in Acts. And reading the staff meeting, Daniel pointed this out to me. And I want us to read this encounter that the apostles had 
when they, in the early, early part of the church, just in Acts chapter 5, were beginning to experience persecution on behalf of the proclamation of the gospel. And I want you to notice two things when we read this, okay? One being their relationship towards their conduct as Christians and obedience, and the second thing being the nature of their experience in the name of Jesus. We're going to look at Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 32 first. And when they had brought them, that is, the authorities bringing the disciples, they brought them to the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you to not teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so it is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So they decide, what do we do with these group of people? Picking up in verse 40. And when they called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. What led these men to rejoice? It's not some stoic asceticism that as they were beaten, they freed themselves from their physical body. It was that they knew that when they were being beaten, it was because other men saw Christ in them. And they knew that their only hope was Christ in them. And that when they realized that they're being persecuted on account of faith in Christ, they realized that they had received a name not by their own merit, but by mercy. They were recipients of God's wonderful grace to be counted, to be named in Jesus Christ. They rejoiced in this miracle and said, whatever comes, if they recognize me for the name with whips or with hardships, with persecutions or calamities, I have the name. I am a Christian because of what Christ has done. When we experience pushback because of our obedience, we rejoice that we are no longer suffering for disobedience. Do you realize that? When you are being persecuted for obedience, we rejoice that we are not suffering for disobedience. How wonderful! How deeply joy-producing to suffer for the name of Jesus. We are blessed to be persecuted by the world for his name because one day we will be justified before God by his name. This is our last point today. That to share in Jesus' trust is to share in his hope. Read with me verses 17 through 19. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, here he quotes Proverbs, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So here Peter begins to talk about judgment. Why do people boast in the name? Because the name stands in our defense. And now he talks about this judgment. He says, he says, judgment begins at the household of God. What does that mean? Well, I think Peter means two things by it. Uh, He's talking about judgment from a human perspective and judgment from a a divine perspective. And we see this human perspective, if you remember a couple weeks ago, in chapter four, verse six, where he says this, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those, those are Christians, who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. In other words, what he's saying is one argument your non-believing friends can say is why do you want to live this costly life of Christianity when everyone who believes Christianity is dead? We judge them with our own eyes. It seems dumb that you would do this. It seems foolish. Christians are judged by the flesh in this world. The world has begun to judge us. And they are surprised What's ironic is in that passage in chapter four, in the first part, he says the world is surprised at you. And here he says, don't be surprised when those who are surprised persecute you. When they find your hope to be a challenge to their own hope. When they find your action to be a threat to their own self-confidence. They will call us fools. They'll call us threats. They will call us whatever seems to be the nice moniker of the day meant to suffer us into submission. Just as the culture of the day made judgments against Jesus Christ, they now make judgments against his people, the church, and they will until Jesus comes back. But when Jesus comes back, this human judgment gives way to a divine judgment. It is as Peter says, we are judged now according to God's will. Back in verse 12, we see what the purpose of God's will is. This fiery trial comes upon us to test us. Remember the illustration Peter used in the beginning of his book. In verses 6 through 7 of chapter 1, he says this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Just as gold is proven valuable when it has its impurities burned off in a furnace, So the judgment of this church age, judgment given at the hand of God, judgment by the will of God, judgment deemed necessary by God helps burn off our false hopes so that we see only the enduring value of Jesus. Suffering helps us by removing objects of false hope and exposing to us the only thing which will endure in the end. It helps us to taste that though obedience is hard, it always brings greater joy in Jesus. You see, as long as we are held captive to the passivity gospel, we run into a barrier of Jesus' nearness. 
Because what Peter is showing here is that when we walk in faithful obedience into fiery places, what we find is the all-satisfying work of Jesus in a deep, heavy, enduring way. And Peter applies an eyeball test to this. He says, what does this look like to the world? It looks like Christians are scarcely saved. Why would they ever live this way? By worldly standards, it seems you barely make it. When everyone who disobeys, they seem to be doing relatively well in this world. It seems that the one who follow Jesus, follows Jesus are the ones who miss out, but it is God and it is not the world who will ultimately stand to judge us. And those who suffer for Christ in this world will not be those who suffer apart from Christ in the judgment in the next world. Each and every one of us will stand before a judge. Each and every one of us are promised to suffer. We will either suffer with Christ and receive his glory or we will suffer apart from Christ because we have rejected his glory. Our object of hope, though tested by suffering, preserves its value in the end. I don't know if you're like me, but this text scares me because I want to believe it, but I don't want to experience it. It's one thing to read 1 Peter. It's another thing to live it. And Peter is preparing you here. When that time comes, do you understand that Christ is drawing so near to you? Do you understand that you will see at the end Jesus more beautiful, more lovely, more valuable, more precious, more kind, more pure, more satisfying, that you will have a deep, unshakable joy, joy which cannot be shaken by all the world throws at you. That is what the experience of suffering as a Christian holds out for us. And it is sobering. But it is something where because God has given you his spirit, he is whispering to you right now, you can do it. You need not turn away. You need not fear what the world fears. Now what do you do with this? You obey. You refuse to think that disobedience will grant you rewards that only Jesus himself can give. Remember what Jesus sustained when he was called to costly obedience? Death. Death without the promise of having the weight of sins removed from him. Death knowing he was going to die for your sins and your sins and your sins and the sins of all who put their hope in him. But what endured Jesus? 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. Do not be surprised. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. What did Jesus do? He entrusted himself to God and moved 
in obedience towards difficult and dangerous circumstances so that you might be healed. So that the wounds of sin, eternal, and the wounds of this world, fleeting, might give way to life in the Lamb, might give way to the worship of Jesus. And now what does Peter call you to do? Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In our suffering, we have the privilege of entrusting ourselves to a father more loving than we can imagine, to a king stronger than we can fathom, and to a Jesus more loving than we can ever dream. That is what awaits us at the crossroads of costly obedience. Because Jesus removed the judgment for our sin, we know that the judgment of this world is not of eternal value, but Jesus is, and Jesus is ours through faith. And so what do we do? We trust God and we do good. Peter isn't writing to you to prepare you to suffer. He's writing to you to prepare you to obey. And when we see the joy of obedience, that at the end of every obedient effort, whether it's easy or whether it is difficult, lies the reward of Jesus himself, the nearness of Christ in me, the inner workings of his Holy Spirit, a sign of a soul ransomed from darkness and brought to marvelous light, a body which might be killed but which will be raised imperishable, a hope untouched, imperishable, and undefiled, guarded by faith in God. I used Polycarp uh, a number of weeks ago as an example, an early martyr in the Christian church, one of the first kind of trendy megachurch pastors of that day to be martyred for his faith. And he was a guy who, when was, he was found in hiding, he made his persecutors a meal and prayed, and they were shocked at the reverence he had for Jesus. Yet they pulled Polycarp, a very old man at this time, older than KJ, and... <laughs> They brought him before a tribunal and they said, curse Christ. Curse Christ and live. And Polycarp says this, 86 years I have served him and he has never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Brothers and sisters, I have no idea what lies ahead of us as a church. But what I know is this gospel means that it's God's goodness. That we will stand at the end and you might experience all hell in this world. But the end is the goodness of Jesus. The goodness of Jesus for you. So we prepare to do good even when it's hard. And we trust that when the world presses against us in our obedience, we will, be, we will not be surprised when we look and in the midst of the flames is Jesus himself saying, we can do it. You can do it. Because I've done it for you. And we obey. And we rejoice. And we endure. Receiving the unfading crown of glory and rejoicing in this brother king for all eternity. Let's pray.
Lord, you would have been a just God to promise us justice without goodness. And yet in Jesus, you've given us both. So Lord, we pray that you help us to obey when times are hard. That you lift perhaps a veil of experience from the church by providing the case study of suffering And that in those moments, we will not bemoan your beauty, but we will rejoice in what this world cannot take. That we will obey and entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good in the brotherhood of the church for the glory of God and a mission that cannot be hindered. Jesus, this is the church living its best life now a life covered with the love and glory of Jesus in our successes and in our pains, in our failures, and in our triumphs. And so, Lord, lead us to obedience, no matter the cost, because Christ endured the greatest cost of obedience to save us and to bring us to God. Praise in your name. Amen.